All right. So continuing in a life lived for God, okay? So what we're going to be doing today, as I said, we're talking in review real quick about the evil's response to righteousness. This was considering how this, uh, after the southern uh, kingdoms had fallen and after the great victories had taken place, which were in chapter number 10, What's now happened is we were looking at is the response of those wicked rulers, those, um, the immediate response of the northern kingdoms. So what they did in response to the southern kingdom's fall was they rallied together. And what we talked about was like last week was really talking about how there was a correlation between the way that they responded and the way that our wicked world responds to righteousness in the lives of believers today. The first thing we took note of was the, the fact that they were united in their leadership. United in their leadership. And we marveled at the level of hostility that emanated from these wicked kings in rebellion to God. They saw his influence as a threat to them, a threat to their power. And so what they did was they responded. And we see the same dynamic taking place in our world today. The same dynamic is taking place in our world today. And this is not only true because of the sinful nature of humanity, which does not change but it's also because of the evil influences that are working in the spiritual world that have not changed. The same evil that existed then, guess what? It exists today. The evil, who, the, the devil that was in existence back in Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of our creation is the very same one that's working in our culture as we speak. We also notice the fact that the Canaanites were working um, to stop the influence of God uh, uh, from, from taking hold. And we see our culture today is actively working to steer our world, to steer our culture away from God, away from anything that speaks of His truth. Then we considered how their response to the fall of southern Canaan made the people of the north united in their identity. You see, there was no place for them in their, there was no place for God in their hearts. And what we find is the fact that in the world today, guess what? There's not a lot of room for God in the hearts of people today. For the Canaanites, this identity that they had, they were, they were worshiping pagan gods, okay? Now, there's not a lot of people in our culture today that are worshiping pagan gods per se, but they are worshiping things. They're worshiping things like money, fame, materialism. One of the biggest ones is self-satisfaction. Man, people want to experience life. Well, if you go on YouTube now, it's just people traveling around the world. I'm going to buy myself an old bus and convert that bad boy, and we're going to drive and see all these cool things because it's all about the experience of the individual, right? So for the, for the pagans back then, they would have been called paganists. But you know what people are called now if we were to give them identity? It's called humanists. A humanist is someone who lives life as if they are their own god. The world revolves around them. It's about what it is they can they can receive. So that was their, their shared identity. The world revolves around me. And because of their shared identity, that both the, the Canaanites from Joshua's time as well as those of our modern day were united in their defiance of God. They were united in their defiance. And we see, um, what we saw was in their recognition of God as their common enemy. It united them in the rebellion. It united them in their defiance against Almighty God. The same way that the northern kingdoms rallied their forces to come against God and to stop his advancement is exactly what we see taking place in our culture today, what we see taking place in our government today, what we see happening in our educational system, what we see happening in our media. Anything it can do to draw people away from God with this humanistic uh, narrative being jammed down everyone's throat. Does anybody get tired of that? Man, it don't matter what you watch, it's got some kind of message they're trying to ramrod down your throat. You're like, man, can I just watch a cooking show, for goodness sakes? 
about making cakes and cookies? Why does that have to be in here, for goodness sakes? Because guess what? There is an agenda being driven. It is active assault against God. Then we notice there the fact that they were united in their aggression. These forces in northern kingdom and northern Canaan came together with a, with a focus, a singular focus, to come as one army. Now recognize this is about ten different armies gathering together with a singular purpose, which was, verse number four told us, or verse number five said, to fight against Israel. And so when we left off two weeks, what had happened was this massive, united military force of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of soldiers, fortified with legions of of individual soldiers. Verse number four said this, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude with horses and chariots, very many. So we see this massive force of soldiers, but on top of that, there are chariots, massive numbers of war chariots and horses as well. All of these things are gathered at a place called Miram. Miram is a lake that's near the Sea of Galilee. They've gathered there. Now, what's interesting about the word Miram, Miram translates this way. It translates as high place. High place. Now, if we go to the law of first mention, which is one of the things when we study the Bible, law of first mention is where a term first shows up in Scripture. And what it'll do is it'll kind of give you a guidepost to where that word or what that meaning is. So when we go to high place, what you'll find in Scripture is many times high place is a negative thing. Many, many, most times. It is an elevated place of worship to build anything that goes up. But what we find is the law of first mention, Leviticus 26, verse 30, says this, And I will destroy your high places and cut down your images and cast your carcasses upon the carcasses of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. That's what God, his first mention of a high place. So here they are gathered, this massive army, this massive pagan force, coming to wage war on God and his people. And what we're going to see today is the result of that confrontation between the power of God versus the power of man. And our message, which is today, is entitled Trusting God Over Chariots, Part One. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today. Thank you for the word of God uh, that you have uh, given us, Lord, that you have provided throughout time, you've preserved for us. And Lord, we thank you so much for the beautiful, amazing pictures that we receive through the Old Testament and the application of blending and understanding how the New Testament works with it. Lord, I pray that you'd guide the message today. God, I have studied. I've put in the time. I've put in the energy. And Lord, I know that you've spoken to me. And Lord, I'm asking you now that you'd speak through me. Lord, please, please, please remove the human element that I might be able to share what it is you have for us. Help us all have ears to hear that we might be changed and prepared for the year to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua chapter 11, we're going to be reading verses 6 through 9, but today we're only going to get through verse 6, just a little indicator to you. All right, it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel, and thou shalt hoof their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the, war, by the waters of Miram suddenly, and they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon and unto, here we go, Misrafoth. Let's go with that. Misrafoth Mayim. I thought that was your address. That'd be fun. Uh, and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward, and they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as the Lord bade him. He hoofed the horses and burnt their chariots with fire. And so as we step back into this story, back into history, what we're going to see is God's response to those who are defying him. These folks stand in direct opposition to God's will being accomplished. They, as we would call them today, we would call them rebellious, right? They're rebellious against God, just like the people of the 21st century. The majority of people that we meet are not openly seeking a relationship with God. Most people 
are rebellious, right? Most people have that sense of disobedience. These Canaanites are opposing God with all their might. They're bringing all their power, all of their influence to bear against God's agenda. So as you go through the story of Joshua, what we're going to see here is as, as they've worked through this, so far recognize that this is going to be the most powerful enemy that they've faced. This is by far the most powerful enemy that they've faced. This is a massive, massive force. And yet we will not see Joshua miss a beat. We will not see him miss a beat. And it's, it's, in, it's, and it's in their dependence upon him that will deliver their victory. For you see, they're not judging the success based upon the size of the opposition that they face, but they're judging what's going to happen based upon the size of their God. Amen. Their faith is in what God can do. They have recognized through this entire thing, through their dependence upon God, that He is the one that brings the victory. The battle is not theirs. Right. As we've seen time and time and again, the battle is the Lord's. And so before they even get close to Miriam, what you'll find is the fact that Joshua follows the same pattern he has before. For all the victories that they've experienced, he's not trusting his own wisdom. When he trusted in himself, when he trusted in his men, they failed. When he trusted in God and didn't trust in himself, they were victorious. So he follows the same pattern here. And because he has ears to hear, we're going to hear, first of all, God gives instructions for victory. It's in verse number 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Be not afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver, will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Thou shalt hoof their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So as God speaks to Joshua, there are several components to the instructions that he gives him. And we're going to look at four different things as we do. In this personal moment with God, first of all, we see that God's going to, he reassures Joshua. Then he establishes the timeline. Then he promises the victory. And then he removes distractions. Okay? Each of these steps, if followed, will be instrumental in them experiencing victory. And so as we review the Lord's instructions, let's first look at how God reassures Joshua. He says this, be not afraid because of them. So though Joshua and his men, listen, they have just devastated large armies. I mean, they went through southern Canaan, and we, we saw what happened. Man, they just laid waste to everybody that came against them. They fell. Without hesitation, man, they just laid into them. They took care of it. So without any hesitation, then they saw the miraculous work that God did at Jericho. Remember, that took place, and they watched God do something that was impossible. This mightiest of cities came crashing down. But God still, for whatever reason, still has to give calming words to Joshua. He starts out <laughs> telling him, be not afraid because of them. You know what this tells us? That just because we have past victories where we've seen God do great things, just because we have a track record of success, no matter how great it may be, fear can still work its way into our lives. It's amazing. Having success does not eliminate fear's influence. Because even though Joshua, listen, who has proven his faith, he has proven that he trusts God time and time again. Man, the whole southern campaign, they were right on course. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, and they had did exactly, God, had, God did exactly what he said was going to happen. And yet... Still, God looks in Joshua's eyes and he sees fear. We know that because God does everything for a reason. He would not say this if it was not necessary. Be not afraid because of them. Joshua's fear is founded in what could happen. Right? Not what has happened. Because what has happened has been nothing but success. That's all they've experienced is incredible success. 
We go to Proverbs 6.18. God talks about things that he hates. One of the things that he mentions is wicked imaginations. Wicked imaginations. These are things that we conjure up in our own minds. Okay? We conjure up in our own minds. What we have here are stories or scenarios that we lay out on how things might go. We gather and assess what we believe is the possible outcomes. And you know what? There's the dreaded phrase, what if? But what if this happens? What if this happens? Not that it has, but what if? And we'll base our lives and move forward in our decision-making process based upon what ifs. Not based upon faith, but fear. And what will happen when we start off with what if is then we start to consider all the worst-case scenarios of how badly it could go. And we'll come up with ridiculous things sometimes. What if this happened? What if this happened? What if this and then we'll literally we'll respond emotionally and physically to this thing that's not even actually taking place yet. It's all fabricated in our mind, a wicked imagination. And what this does is it disregards the fact that God is sovereign Amen. over all things. God knows all things, by the way. He knows all things. He knows what tomorrow holds. But how many of us live in fear of tomorrow? Hey, listen, we got 2023 out of us. A whole lot of tomorrows. Will we go forward by faith or by fear? Our fear casts doubt not only on God's power, but on God's character. Okay? Because recognize, what does God want for us? God wants what's best for us. That's the heart of God. You can see it throughout Scripture. A time and time again, God's heart's desire is to bless His people. That's always what He's working towards. Even when their hearts aren't right. Even when they've turned themselves from God, he still loves them. Consider the Israelites, who God had done so much for. We see what they're doing. He's doing with Joshua right here, man. And it's amazing what God does. And yet they will still turn their hearts from God. And yet they will still turn to pagan, pagan faith. They will serve other gods. The very thing that he told them, first of all, do not do that. And that's what they did. And they fall prey to that. And while they're in the midst of that, and God's having to punish them by allowing them to go into captivity... Now listen to what he says. Jeremiah, by way of Jeremiah, God tells this to the people. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Now listen, they're in captivity. They've been dis disobedient. What are the thoughts that you and I in our humanity, what would be vengeance, anger, wrath? We'd be all about punishment and try to break some man. You just, I'll teach you a lesson. But listen to what he says. This is while they're in captivity. They're in the midst of punishment. Peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. That's his heart. Though they're going through adversity right now, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. This is modeled for us in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12. Because what we see there is in Hebrews 12, God's dealing with people that are living in defiance of him, those that are walking not in, not, not in a right relationship with God. So what he's doing is he's chastening them. He's drawing them back. He's punishing them. And it wraps up this in verse number 11, Hebrews 12, 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Listen, this isn't a pleasant thing. The, the Israelites aren't loving being in captivity, but grievous nevertheless afterward. For us, listen, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. God does what He does because He loves us and wants us to experience the peaceable fruit of righteousness. He's trying to draw us to be better. God loves us even at our worst and is always working to draw us back to Him. He wants what's best for us. That's His character, right? So when we don't trust Him, we're defying His character. 
And listen, sometimes our successes are going to come by way of victory. Praise the Lord. But most times, unfortunately, because we're stiff-necked, hard-headed people, it comes by way of defeat many times. Because it's not until we're at a place of brokenness that we have a willingness to hear. We believe we have all the answers. Remember, there's that humanistic mindset that's in all of us. Then what's we got to understand? At a place of brokenness, in that moment, what will happen is we'll earnestly seek God. We might have done it superficially before, but then, boy, when we got no other options, we're seeking the Lord, and, man, we are diligent. We're committed. We're in. Listen to what, as God continues his letter through Jeremiah, speaking to them in the midst of their captivity. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Listen to my heart. And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Amen. Remember, this is God's heart during a time of punishment as they've served other gods. Just imagine what his heart is like when they're actually walking in obedience. Well, the cool thing is we don't have to imagine because we're literally looking at it right now. This is where Joshua is. This is the Israelites, the same people group. But now they're walking with God. Listen to what Joshua heard from them before they ever faced their first enemy. There shall not any man be able to stand before you, Joshua 1.5. Before thee all the days of life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. He reiterates this truth to us in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness, talking about idolatry, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I will be with you. Verse number 6. So that ye that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. Notice the next part. No matter what comes, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I will not live based upon fear. I will hold and move forward on faith. No matter what we face, listen, he says he'll be with us. But instead of trusting his word, many times what happens to us, we fall into fear. And guess what? Joshua's just a man. So guess what happens to him? The same thing. He's vulnerable just like like we are. So as word gets back to Joshua about how massive this army is, guess what? There's a good chance he's becoming intimidated. He hasn't seen it himself, but boy, oh boy, it's, it's weighing on him. And so God reminds him of the thing that you and I need to be reminded of every single day. Listen to his words, man. He says, you know, says, be not afraid of them. Be not afraid of them. 1 John 4, 4 teaches us this. As you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. With them greater is he, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You see, the victory is already assured. Listen, our Heavenly Father has dominion over everything. Amen. No matter what it is. No matter what the circumstance or situation Joshua has seen God do the impossible. He's witnessed it with his own eyes. And yet still, he experiences fear. I don't know if that makes anybody else feel good or feel better about themselves. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, Joshua's been an amazing example. He's an incredible leader, all these things that he's done. And yet, it's impacting him. So we're all, unfortunately, we're all vulnerable to it. Remember, this isn't the first time that God's had to do this for Joshua. What we find is that God's reassured him through this entire journey. Look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. I'm with you, don't worry. Don't be scared, Joshua. 
Joshua 8, 1. And the Lord said, and understand this is way past Jericho. This is at Ai. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. It says, Neither be thou dismayed. Dismayed means to be freaked out, right? And this means to be shaken or distressed. The kind of person that's trembling in expectation. Has anyone ever been there before? You get news of something, and man, oh man, it just just knocks you in the gut. And you are dismayed. Perhaps overwhelmed as you look out at the forces that are rallied and all their strength against your marriage, against your finances, against your physical health, your family, your career, your mental health. There are forces standing against us. And man, oh man, just like Joshua, we've experienced those moments of like, oh my goodness. Do you see how, how big it is? How overwhelming it is? And that's what's happening to him. And yet, can I encourage you? What did God say to Joshua? Be not afraid because of them. Joshua 10, 8, he said this, And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not. For I have delivered them into thine hand. There shall not, not a man of them stand before thee. Right? This is the fifth time God's told him not to be afraid. So Joshua struggles with fear, yet Joshua's a great leader. Joshua's a great man of God. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Fear is a part of life. But listen, will we walk by faith or will we walk by fear? We have to decide. God was with Joshua, and guess what? He's with us no matter what we face. Amen. Next we see God establishes the timeline. He says, for tomorrow, about this time. Okay? So, not only does God, listen, have a plan and a purpose for the outcome, but God also has a plan and a purpose for the timing of the outcome. It's His time, not ours. Not ours. And this is where a lot of people have a very difficult time. Because recognize this, the idea of functioning on someone else's timeline, even God's, for some of us, is very difficult. We have a perspective of the way we think things should go, the timing of situations or circumstances. So this is a hurdle for a lot of us in our walk with God. But I want you to notice here, in Joshua's story, what we find out, he says, listen, about this time tomorrow. So that's about 24 hours. This is a long way to travel. What he's saying is, you know what? You're going to Miram. You're going to be there tomorrow at this time. That means Joshua and his men are going to have to rally and march all night long in order to arrive there. Yet he doesn't say, God, can we get one more day? He doesn't say, you know what, God, this is a long way, Lord. We're going to be exhausted when we get there. Now we're going to fight the largest army that we've ever faced before. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, you know what he does? He rallies his forces and he just does it. He mobilizes them. Now, my question to us, right? What if something similar to that happened in our lives? God wanted us to respond immediately, drop everything. And he says, listen, hey, guess what? I got a whole new path for your life starting tomorrow. Mm. Now, I think most of us would like to think that we might say, oh, yes, Lord, yes. <laughs> to your will and to your way, I'll say, yes, Lord, yes. I will trust you and obey when your spirit speaks to me. With my whole heart, I'll agree. And the answer will be yes, Lord, yes, right? That's what we think we would do, right? Yeah, that was beautiful, wasn't it? 
I'll be signing autographs afterwards. But the point is this. Though that sounds good, and in our heart of hearts that we might want that to be our response, is there anyone else that would be challenged by that? Yeah. It would be difficult. But what if it was on the other end of the scale? What if it wasn't about immediate response? It was about waiting. What if it was about patience? A willingness to be patient and to wait on God's timing as opposed, as opposed, as opposed to our own. Listen, perhaps we've prayed for God to, to move in our lives. And yet, things are stagnant. Maybe we have prayed earnestly for God to work a miracle in our loved one's life and to heal them. And yet they're still sick. Maybe we have cried out to God to help us with sin. And yet we still struggle. Sometimes waiting is a hard thing to do. Well, there's three answers to prayer. There's yes, there's no, and there's wait. Yes and no aren't too bad. Yes is an awesome one. No, okay. But wait. Will we wait on the Lord? The sad thing is, I bet you there are so many prayers that God was this close to answering, and people just said, you know what? I'm done. I quit. Don't give up. Trust. Trust the Lord. God. This we trust God for the outcome. It's about the timing of things. So many times, God's working a specific timeline. He knows how it needs to function. Notice what it says in Romans 8, verse 25. It says this, But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Wait for it. One of the traits of God that we gain by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God that moves within us is long-suffering. We see it in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. The long-suffering now, long-suffering, if you translate that, it means patience with humanity. I don't know about some of you guys, but it does take some supernatural power to have patience with some people <laughs> in this world. There are folks that will push you to your limits. There is no doubt about it. But long-suffering. Patience is a part of who God is. Understand, God's timing is always perfect. Recognize, when they were in that, uh, uh, the Israelites were in captivity. It was for 70 years and listen to what God said. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. I know the end of your captivity. All you need to do is trust me until I bring it to an end. You be patient. Romans 15 verses 4 through 5 says this. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The word of God should give us patience to hold on, to trust the Lord. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. This is the way we're supposed to be. Like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus. Will we trust God's timing like Joshua is doing here? He does what God asks him to do and doesn't argue. Next, we see that God's instructions. That God promises the victory. He says this, I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Like, what we notice right away is God's statement. The way that he says it is interesting. Because he says it as if it's already happened. There's an incredible confidence and finality in the way that he states it. Almost like he's saying, listen, before you get there, they're already going to be dead. He says, listen, I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Okay. 
He's speaking about it as it is fact. It is a determined fact, and yet it is still in the future. How does God do that? How does God talk about things that are yet to happen, yet he speaks with such incredible confidence? You see, for God, time doesn't function like it does for you and I. You and I live in a timeline, right? One second leads to the next second, to the next second, to the next second, to the next second. God doesn't function that way. God reasons, the reason God speaks of the victory of the northern kingdoms as if it's already happened is because for God, it already has. He has already seen the way it functions. Notice what Jesus, when he describes himself in the book of Revelation, chapter number one, verse eight, he says this, I am Alpha and Omega. He defines it, beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come. He's saying, I am in the past, I'm in the present, and I am in the future all at the same time. In 90 AD, when John is writing this, recognize the fact that, listen, God calls him up to heaven in, John, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And John is called up to the presence of God. And what we'll see is the fact that he's called there so that he can record the book of Revelation, which goes off into eternity. Do you realize that John saw the future firsthand? But what's interesting is when John relays it, he says this, I saw, I saw, past tense. He says it 36 times. There's only one of the book that even comes close. It's the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah also is called in the presence of God. And he says, I saw, I saw, I saw. And there's another word there also, which is interesting. As he's writing this, understand the fact that as he's relaying it, he's relaying it as it's his past but he's literally talking about the distant future and he's in 90 AD and he's talking about eternity to come because for him it is the past, right? He's in the realm of God for that moment and he sees the future and now he relays it as the past. Revelations 1.8, there's that last word that's said in this verse. Jesus says this, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the, notice this word, Almighty. Almighty, absolute power over space, over matter, and over time. Every aspect of reality. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God functions outside of our reality. He already knows. Listen, He knows what has happened but he also knows what is going to happen. It's all a reality. Recognize when you read the Bible, it's covering our entire timeline. When you start off at the book of Revelation or book of Genesis in verse 1, 1 1, in the beginning, this is the beginning of time. And when you go to Revelation 22 and you look at the very end, listen, it goes on into eternity. It's the entire timeline of humanity. Our entire existence is all recorded in this book. Amen. So understand the future is already written. This is something we have to understand. This is the way God sees the world. The future is already written. We see what, and, you, and we see proof of this right now. Look at the world around us. We can go to Scripture right now and see things written about the end times that are taking place as we speak that were written hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years ago. Unbelievably. Understand the fact that the Bible is telling us the reality of who, who is going to win this battle. God knows 
how things end because guess what? He has already seen it. He knows the truth. And see, this is true for Joshua and the northern kingdoms. But it's true for you and me too as well, right? You realize that, listen, if you're a born-again child of God, your eternity is already determined right now as we speak. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 57. It says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is through God. It's not through us. We don't have to be strong. We don't have to be fortified. We don't have to be smart. Thank God. (laughs) Because I would not be here. But man, God's given us His wisdom. We don't need to be smart because we can gain from His. It's like cheating off somebody's paper, man. God says, hey, I'll just, you know, just, just do what I, I write. Just write that stuff down. I'm like, okay. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Someone comes for counsel. Guess what? They don't want to hear what we have to say. They want to hear what God has to say. You don't, man, if I give you my wisdom, you're going to be in deep trouble. And so as you see, the greatest threats that life can throw at us gather their forces and beat their chests and sharpen their swords and roar. The Bible's telling us we need not fear. You see, for God has seen the future. The God who loves us, by the way. The God who wants what's best for us, by the way. He instructs us not to be afraid. If you were to track it through your Bible and you were to look at how many times it talks about it, it says, fear not, don't be afraid. There's 365 different times in your Bible that it tells you not to be afraid. How cool is it? We have one for every day of the year. Be not afraid. Because, listen, he's with us in the battle. He's reassuring us in his word and in his presence. He's directing our pace according to his perfect timing, reminding us that the battle is not ours. The battle is his. And then there's one final element that he shares here in these instructions, which protects the Israelites from themselves. And it's this, letter D. God removes distractions, okay? Notice this. Thou shalt hoof their horses and burn their chariots with fire, okay? So as we mentioned last week, a war chariot, okay? At this time in the world, this is the most powerful weapon that exists on the planet. Nothing stands close. So this northern kingdom is heavily fortified with war chariots. These things would have been armored, Okay? They're a devastating weapon. They could be used to run down. It would have two horses on it, and it would be used to run down men. They could run right through the regiments and run men over. They were heavily weighted. They also had a quiver of arrows built into the front of it, filled with arrows. And there's a mobile platform for an archer just to go anywhere he wanted, choom, 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 laying waste. So this thing is devastating. It is powerful. And you know what it could do? It could make Joshua say, man, if we had those, oh, Man, I know we're intimidating now, but if we had a whole, I mean, if we had all those war chariots lined up in the next battle, dude, can you imagine the look on their faces? Can you imagine the power that we would have? And yet God tells them to destroy them. Destroy them. And he tells them to hoof the horses. That means to hamstring them. They cut the tendon on the back of the horse's leg. This makes the horse not, I mean, it's still alive, it can still function, it can still live, 
but it's no longer going to be able to pull heavy weight. It's no longer going to be able to use for war. So he's telling them, make it all of no use. Destroy it. Now, why would God tell them to do that? Why would he not want them to have this incredible weapon? Well, interesting, when we go to the law of first mention, and you track chariots. It's interesting. They show up in Genesis chapter 50, verse number 9. And you know what it tells us? Chariots come from Egypt. And as we've been working through our study, through the book of Exodus and Joshua, Egypt is a type and a picture of the world. Right? God's trying to tell him, hey, I don't want you dependent on the world. But depend upon me. It looks like God's instructions, he's telling the Israelites to eliminate the temptation that they could have to want to use these mighty weapons for themselves. And you know what? Scripture bears this out. Psalm 20 verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. Our God. Isaiah 31.1 says this. Notice how he starts. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots. Because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Boy, they look at the weapons of the world. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. See, it appears God's protecting them from putting their faith and their trust in anything but Him. Because that's our tendency. Not only on ourselves, but the wisdom of the world. You've got people that are dealing with issues in their heart and their mind. Instead of turning to the Word of God, they'll turn to, to, the, to, the, to the mindset of the world. They'll go, well, this person has a PhD, this person has this, 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 this. I'm going to go get the psychological help from this psychologist, the psychiatrist who knows all these things. They have worldly wisdom. Can I can promise you, listen, the solutions for every issue of the heart and of man, listen, ultimately it goes back to the Word of God. Amen. And the problem is we've lost our dependence upon this. Right. And we've shifted away and we go, you know what? I'm going to put my faith in chariots and in horses because, you know, they look impressive. They look powerful. What does it say? They look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. He said, listen, you're protecting them from themselves. Put their trust in anything but Him. For what this should say to us, as we consider insurmountable forces standing against us, is that that God must be our sufficiency. There are a lot of things that will be intimidating in this life. Plenty. They will overwhelm us emotionally, spiritually. And God said, hey, listen, don't turn to the world for answers. Though it might look like a good solution, I need to be your sufficiency. You must put full dependence upon me. This is God's instructions to Joshua. It's what he's telling him. But it's also what he's telling us. Right? The same issues, the same battles. We're not to be afraid. We're to trust God's timing. We're to allow God to bring the victory and remove the distractions of the world from our lives. Simple. But application is a different story. Knowing what to do and then doing it are two totally different things. 
There are a lot of people that can tell you all about what you should do, but they don't do it in, them lives, in their lives. That's a person that, you know, that weighs 480 pounds telling you how to diet. You go, yeah, based upon your results, I'm going to tell you, I'm probably not going to listen to that advice. But there are a lot of people that are Christian, as Christians, that are bloated with knowledge, but have no application. Their life is a wreck. I'd much rather you be spiritually anemic and have a little bit of application than to be spiritually bloated and think you have all the answers and not apply it. The problem we have is that's why God's constantly warning us about judgment, 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 judgment. Because you can get fat and happy thinking you have all the answers and you can look at other people and go, you know, look at them. No, God says, you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to look into the perfect law of liberty and look and see yourself. This Bible is not to beat other people up with. This Bible is to change us. And as God changes us, then our lives change someone else's. A little soapbox moment, so that's not my message. But anyway, will we follow God's instructions as the Israelites will and put our trust in Him? Or will we trust in chariots, the things of the world? See, we have to, we have to choose. One leads to victory, a promised victory from God. The other leads to defeat. Maybe not right away, but it always does. So to the flesh, reap corruption. So to the spirit, reap life everlasting. Amen. Sowing and reaping is always true. But you know what? The timing is up to God. You may reap, man, you may sow in your flesh and go, man, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening, nothing's happening. I can keep on doing this. Nothing's happening. Oh, no, 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 no. I can promise you. There's a, there's a harvest coming, and it'll be destructive. But you could also be doing good things and trying so hard to sow to the Spirit and reap life everlasting. And the very next verse says, Be not weary in well-doing, for ye shall reap. This is in due time, ye shall reap, if ye fain not. Just do the right thing. Do the right thing. Choose God. Choose victory, not defeat. Because in the end, guess what? The choice is ours. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Father, for the truths that you've shown us. Just see this simple verse, uh, chapter number 11, verse number 6. Thank you for the instructions that you gave Joshua that we're able to glean from. Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters that we would, uh, as we approach this new year and as we will face challenges, help us to be mindful to fall back to these instructions, to not be afraid, to trust your timing, to let you bring the victory and remove the distractions of the world. These are simple, simple concepts, but boy, if we'll apply them, they can make a world of difference, not only in our life, but the lives of those that are watching us and the lives that our lives will touch. Thank you for the word today. Thank you for your people. Thank you for what you're teaching us. And Lord, I pray that you help us in application. With our heads bowed and eyes still closed, you're here today. And you say, listen, Pastor, I have got a challenge here or two. I've got some things in my life that are a little intimidating right now. And uh, I need prayer. Listen, God's told us what to do. It's going to be application. But sometimes we need some help through it. And listen, if you're struggling right now, you're dealing with something, reach out to a brother or sister. Reach out to Christine or I. Let us help you. But right now, what I can do is I can pray for you. And I will absolutely do that. If you're here today and say, listen, I'm facing some stuff in this world. 
and I need some prayer right now. If you would pray for me, Pastor, raise your hand. Amen. 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 Just keep them up. I'd say, hey, listen, that's me. Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that are struggling. Lord, whatever things are fortified against them. And I'd ask God that you'd please, Lord, help them to depend upon you, not to live in fear, not to react in their emotions, but Lord, to hold on to the faith of who you are and the promises of your word. God, would you fortify them, uh, Father, through your presence and through your word to be people of faith. And Lord, as their fear tries to raise its ugly head, help them to be reminded of what you whispered to Joshua. Be not afraid because of them. Faith is the victory. And Lord, I pray for anyone today who may not know that they're Savior, that they that they're the Savior. Someone today who may say, you know what, I don't, I know I've got struggles, but I don't even know. I don't even know if I know Christ. I know of him. There's a big difference between knowing God and having a relationship with him. A relationship comes by way of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross, paid for the sins of the world, and offers salvation to any and all who will believe. And if he's calling your heart right now, all you have to do is receive it. It's not just believing in God. It's putting your faith in him. Because remember, the devil, he believes in God. The demons tremble in the presence of God. But have you received the gift of God, which is eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Remember, he loves us in our brokenness, in our worst moments. And right now, if you're religious but lost, maybe you've put your faith in your understanding of God, but you've never personally received him, you have that chance to do it now. Watching this recorded, listening to it online, you can listen and receive Christ with your heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ, he's calling you right now. And all you have to do is respond. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you want to receive him, I'm going to lead you in prayer. There's no magic to the prayer, but he's listening to your heart. Let me repeat after me in your heart and mind if you want to receive the Lord. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I know that I have I've hurt my family. I've hurt myself. But most importantly, I've hurt you. And I'm sorry. I come today with a broken heart, willing to receive the gift that you offered from the cross. I believe that you died for my sins. You were buried in a borrowed tomb and you were raised to life on the third day. With all my heart, I'm asking you right now to save my soul and give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.